thank you very much and uh, thank you for giving me the chance to share with you my, the, the topic of my research. Um, today I'm talking to you about the right to family reunifications for people who are regularly admitted to live in a foreign country. In general, they are people with uh, permanent work permits or political refugees. Uh, sorry, Paul. But, okay. Uh, behind uh, the legal differences between states, my thesis is the following. Family ramifications cannot be considered simply a civil right available only to someone, limited to certain circumstances, but it must be considered as a human right, equally and unconditionally valid for all. In other words, the state allows a person to live and work within its border, and this person is a family member, for example, a parent, or in general, a member who holds a binding responsibility toward other family members, then the host states must also accommodate the other members of her his family. The inclusion of one must be the inclusion of all. I'm going to justify this thesis with, first of all, an ontological argument and with a phenomenological one. And then I will analyze the essential relationships between the human rights and the civil rights of the democratic states. And finally, I will purpose a phenomenological analysis of the relationship between the international joint commitment established by the Charter of Human Rights and the democratic sovereignty of the single states. This part of the speech, the ontological argument, is based on the theory of the wall and part that Husserl developed in the uh, third logic research. If we translate the previous thesis, the inclusion of one must be the inclusion of all in ontological terms, then it applies in particular to the kind of wall that Urs defined pregnant. This wall consists of parts that are so interconnected with each other and so dependent on their wall, they, they must be considered non-independent part of it. In some cases, it may happen that a wall is only partially bound to another by means of a common part of them, in other cases, it may happen that a wall is entirely bound to another as a part of it. Then we have a stratification of walls, in which the constraint between the upper wall and the lower wall includes also the part of the ladder. Without considering the wide variety of possible cases, here I'm interested in underlining what happens when a pregnant wall or an, a non-independent part of it is part of higher order wall. I suggest uh, two possible cases. Uh, the full inclusion, the superior wall includes all the parts of the lower wall respecting their constraints, and partial inclusion uh, when the superior walls includes a non-independent part of a pregnant wall without breaking the bound that bind in the other non-independent part of the same. Uh, the inclusion of a pregnant wall or the inclusion of a non-independent part of it in a higher order wall must occur in such a way that the constraint of non-independence between the parts of the lower order wall are not compromised. Family and, and state are, um, are two different kinds of social walls and the relationship between them is normally a full inclusion. Uh, but uh, the situations change when a host state welcomes a member of a family that belongs 
to another state. In this case, while the family continues to be a part of its original state, a member of it begins to be a part of another state. Therefore, the full inclusions become a partial one. If we conceive the family F as a, sorry, okay. um, as a pregnant wall, which is made up of non-independent parts, P1, P2, that are intrinsically bound to each other, then the inclusion of one of these parts in another wall, such as the host states, safeguard the included part and its collective subject, the family, only if the inclusion of the part does not cause separations from the other non-independent part of their family. According to my thesis, the partial inclusion cannot be accepted in the case of the collective subject family when it implies a permanent and indeterminate separation between its members. The permanent and indeterminate removal of one or more members of the collective subject family constitute an ontological criticality that may dissolve the kind of social wall or radically transform its identity in the long run. Consequently, the complete inclusion is the only right for admitting a person and prohibiting family reunification means keeping her him in a permanent state of traumatic isolations and threatening the existence of her family. Such a choice creates a condition for social vulnerability, both for the person who is admitted in a, the new host state and for her collective subject family, which is first to live in a permanent conditions of ontological criticality. This part of my speech is based on the, um, the work of Alfred Schutz and the phenomenological analysis uh, that Schutz uh, dedicated to the social world and uh, consequently the, the job, the work of Berger and Luckmann. <clears throat> the importance of belonging to a community which is characterized by a relationship of intimacy and solidarity is also understandable on the basis of uh, the phenomenological theory of social work that I'm developing in my research project. In a nutshell, this theory highlights the specific differences between the different layers of the social world and consequently propose and articulate and at the same time essential visions of the process of social integration through all these stratifications. Each stratification is essentially characterized by an accessory set of social relationships and bond. A character is ontologically necessary or essentially characteristic if, the, if it's the conditions for the ontological subsistence of something. Very briefly, my phenomenological account identifies at least three distinct layers of the social world. The community, which is characterized by interpersonal relationships of affective and sentimental kind in which a sense of mutual solidarity prevails and generally we find the most intense form of dedication to the other, joint commitment and common feelings. Community normativity is characterized by rules that, in general, are not standardized and do not typify the personal individualities. The community rules are adapted to the members and are subordinated to the feeling that unite them. The society, the second, the society which is characterized by interpersonal relationship between individuals and collective subjects that are not bound to each other by an emotional, emotive or affective or sentimental bonds. They are bound by the fact of sharing a certain social context in which they perform social tasks, play social rules, respect social rules. In this context, the subject is outside the protective place of the community and is included in the social competitions. 
The ladder is the essential characteristic of, the, of this second social layer. Social normativity is determined, is defined by a series of publicly shared rules that define the regime of normality for of a given uh, social context. They fix the conditions, in other words, to have an efficient, an efficient social interactions with the other subject of the society. And the third is the state, the institutions, which brings together a multiplicity of community subject and territorial context under the same legal order of law. In front of the state, citizens are all the same, in particular the democratic states. They have the same rights and duties, and their relations are standardized at the highest level of typifications. The normativity of the state is the law. Uh, strictly connected to this stratification of the social world uh, is my conceptions of the is my uh, analysis of the path of social integrations uh, within a full complex uh, social world. Each of these layers contains different kinds of social interactions on which uh, different types of social bonds and consequently different types of social worlds, collective subjects depend. Each of them is a necessary step of a fully successful part of social integrations in which each person can carry out her his own, own life projects and be protected from the social marginalizations that make her him a vulnerable subject. Social approval contrasts isolations, institutional recognition safeguard against marginalizations and clandestinity. Community belonging preserves the subject from loneliness. Therefore, my thesis is based neither on a specific cultural model of the family, nor on the claim that this has an inviolable and universal value. It is rather based on the, contribution, on, on the um, attributions of a fundamental value to certain types of bonds, affective and sentimental, which constitute the texture of the primary level of every possible part of social integrations. Marginalizations, isolation and solitude are treated to the persons, since they make him a vulnerable subject. Then human beings have the right to a full social integration, which preserves them from situations of vulnerability. The relationship between civil rights and human rights. The point on which I want to reflect now concerns the relationship between civil rights of which the citizens are bearers and human rights of which every human being is the bearer as such. If, that, if there can be neither a radical separation between these two fields of right, uh, nor a, a contradictory relationship, in particular in a democratic state, um, then we have to understand what kind of relationship is possible between them. I suggest two possible theories. The first, which I propose to define as the theory of universal dependence and compass all civil rights and duties in the broader container of human rights. And the second, which I purpose to define as the theory of relative independence, recognize a certain degree of eccentricity of civil rights with respect to human rights. The first theory could be summarized as follows. Since the charter of human rights must apply to every human being, and each member of the human race must be considered as such, regardless of his uh, social status, citizen, refugees, foreign, stateless, then the Charter of Human Rights must apply to 
every individual of the human race regardless of her his social status. Consequently, civil laws can never violate what is sanctioned by the Charter of Human Rights. In a very general sense, we can share this thesis, but it presents the limit of conceiving the relationship between civil rights and human rights within a dualistic horizon. Therefore, it tries to overcome this dichotomy by means of their common denomina denomi denominator, which is, which is the, uh, the state, uh, sorry, which is the um, human beings, uh, which is judged within uh, an axiological framework that attribute primacy to the natural datum with respect to the social one. In a nutshell, since we are human beings before we are citizens, and because we remain human beings even outside of a civil rights system, then the natural characteristic of being human is an essential character, original and therefore necessary and inviolable future, while the social characteristic of being a citizen is a, a non-essential character. However, every human being who comes into the world receives immediately an order of rights and duty from the social context that welcomes and educates him. From the, uh, womb, from the womb, the human being is already bearer of right, and his, ident in, uh, his identity depends on the normative order of the social context to which he belongs to. An example of the dependence is the birth control, when human life depends on legal norms and is subordinate political, social, and economical reason. Therefore, it is neither clear to which stage of life a human being would simply such without bearing a civil status nor what kind of human life is possible or it would be possible outside of a civil order the second theory could be summarized by the following type of reasoning in a political and very general sense we can share the theory of universal dependence however since the government of a country is faced with a series of complex problems then it is not possible for it to please everyone to solve practical problems without compromises, to compromise the order and security of its own citizen. In other words, the responsibility of those government states and have a commitment toward its citizens requires them a sovereignty that cannot be totally subject to external influences. Also in this approach, the civil and human rights appear as different, non-conceding uh, regula regulatory field among which the best possible co uh, conjunction must be found. However, this conjunction cannot be considered an absolute imperative because it remains subordinated to the factual circumstances of the historical situations. Therefore, the Charter of Human Rights may be subject to exceptions regarding the needs of individual states. However, in this approach, which attempt to justify the possible divergence between particular civil rights and universal human rights, there are several questions that are not easy to resolve, such as to what extent can the Charter of Human Rights be amended without compromising the commitment to it and the other signatory states, which type of rights are uh, really fundamental and therefore mandatory and which are not, etc. I will try to answer, if I time, uh, in the last quest, in the last part of my speech. A possible solution uh, to the problem rising to the previous theories can be found in the preamble of the Charter of Human Rights approved on the December 1948 by General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, an intrinsic link between civil rights and human rights is here sustained such that the respect of human rights coincides with the respect of the pre for the principle, for the values of democratic state and consequently 
with its civil law. The Charter Preamble states the following. The right of this international commitment must be considered an inviolable values for every human being, regardless of race, nationality, social status. On the basis of this universal recognition of human beings must be considered equal. That is, every human being bears the same degree of dignity. The safeguard of this dignity is an essential criterion for building a fair and secure society, which guarantees respect for the fundamental principle of democracy. Therefore, the respect for human rights is a necessary condition for the existence of democracy. In the wake of the recognition of this link, I maintain that the respect of human equality and dignity is a universal value that, one, considered with the axiological foundations of Western democracies and indicates the best strategy in order to build an authentic democratic state. Finally, I want to stress that the civil rights of a democracy and universal human rights are not two distinct normative fields, but two phases of the same order, two phase of the same order of principle in its double declination as norm of social governance and as norms of moral orientations. And this last part of the speech is based on the work of Reinach, on the theory of Reinach about the social act of promise. In general, the right of sovereignty is claimed by virtue of the commitment that being the state to its citizenship. The, um, the latter is rightly considered the direct address of the political choices and institutional actions of his own government. The mandate of citizenship legitimates the rules. These links impose, first of all, the respect of the constitutions that has been established independent, independently and before the Charter of Human Rights. Also, the constitution can be considered as a form of promise of committed, which being the state, to its citizenship and vice versa. In general, we could think that the constitution of a state and international commitment are two disjointed types of promises that have in common only the promising subject. However, this last one is not only a common element, but is a real moment of unity of the two commitments. Indeed, if the same subject makes two commitments, then the obligations arising from them are mutually constrained because they cannot make him make choice and perform actions that are contradictory to each other. All the choice, actions, social constraints of a subject can also be conceived as a non-independent part or unified moment of his identity. Insofar as the subject makes contradictory choice and actions, the unitary foundation of his emerging identity is lost. Likewise, a state that assumes contradictory obligations or does not consistently comply with concordant obligations is a state without a mature identity, or we can say is an incomplete democracy. Whoever put obligations that a state has on its own citizen before any other kind of external constraint assumes a wrong concept of sovereignty. We could summarize it with the following reasoning. A subject, individual or collective is sovereign if and only if he maintains the commitment with himself, in the case of a democratic state, uh, with his own citizen. However, it should be noted that any type of social subject, singular or collective, exercises its own sovereignty by respecting the commitment that assumes in front of the other and towards them, and then, and that every commitment towards someone, also it is always a commitment to towards ourselves. Therefore, betraying one's commitment to the other is tantamount to betray oneself. If a state freely contracts an obligation vis-a-vis -vis other states, these obligations fully falls within the boundaries of its sovereignty. In summary, violations of human rights as well as violations of civil rights are in the same way violations of state sovereignty. In conclusion, since the permanent separations of a family member may have 
bad consequences both on the ontological stability of the family and on the social integrations of the separated members, since every human being has the right to be defended by every type of social isolation by means of a satisfactory part of social integrations, then the family reunification has to be considered a human right. Since family reunification is a human right, then it is a fundamental task of every democratic state. This task is linked to unconditional obligations that does not violate the democratic sovereignty, but on the contrary, safeguard it.